Hello, welcome back to season two of the Faith in Development podcast brought to you by Tear Fund. My name is Sabine Hunsi. In today's episode, my colleague Nina Sumera, Tear Fund's gender-based violence and emergency specialist, is in conversation with Emily Kawuga, a gender-based violence expert currently working for Save the Children in South Sudan. In the conversation, they discuss Emily's experience as a humanitarian worker in different contexts, including support to survivors of gender-based violence during emergencies, as well as women leadership and participation. I really hope you enjoy the conversation. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another conversation on gender and protection. We are happy to have with us Emily Kabuga. In Kenya, she worked with the Danish Refugee Council, undertaking case management in refugee and IDP camps. She also worked with the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, where she worked to facilitate resources for GBV programming and performed a lot of coordination work. She was also with Save the Children, focusing on gender-based violence vis-a-vis child protection. At the moment, Emily is in South Sudan, still working on GBV prevention and response and women's participation in peace building. Welcome to this podcast, Emily. Thank you very much, Nina. You've been in that field for so many years, so it would be great if you can describe your journey as a humanitarian worker, particularly your commitment to gender and protection. I started this journey in 2013 and I joined uh, while I was working with children under child protection and uh, GBV. And uh, through this, through my journey, I can say that I have found uh, my purpose in terms of uh, strengthening the structures to ensure that uh, to ensure zero tolerance of gender-based violence, and to ensure that uh, structures are not only um, are not only strengthened at the at the community level but this will also have an effect in the collective responsibility when it comes to women protection and uh, peace building and through this my desire is to see all women have their safe spaces to see women empowered to see women protected when it comes to uh, issues of gender-based and violence and women given opportunity and women allowed to make decisions because most of the, the the location that I've worked in, they are very strong patriarchal systems that prevent women in terms of making decisions, and even and and that is one one of the sources of uh, gender based violence. Now that they are not allowed to make decisions, their their concerns are not uh, considered. That becomes one issue of gender based violence. Thank you so much. Um, Emily, you've worked with um, refugees and internally displaced uh, people, and these people uh, have been driven to driven out of their homes because of conflict. Um, in your experience, what makes gender-based violence prevalent during conflict, especially if you know those conflicts um, intersect with other crises? Um, looking at uh, gender-based violence during conflict, there are different aspects to look at. 
Number one, I know women are more susceptible to gender-based violence, even when it comes to conflict. This is uh, because they are looked as the sympathizers of conflicts use women, and by, by using them is abuse women. They are used, some are used as uh, sexual slaves. Others are used, uh, are abused sexually so that they can get favor. If they are moving from one location to another, uh, they are used to to use then others are used as a bait if you need this service we have to give this and that's now brings in the issues of sexual exploitation and abuse which is not talked about more but during a crisis that is what happens then of course during crisis there's this issue of because a woman is running away from a crisis and she's looking for someone to rescue they, they find themselves in marriages that uh, they are not according to what they want but they want to be in that structure for them to be to be protected so they get married what we can call quote unquote a forced marriage and through that because they still want to be under structure of a patriarchal system to be protected they persevere and remain in those abusive marriages which exacerbates the the prevalence of gender-based violence then again when it comes to services women during crisis or during emergencies they abuse, there's a high prevalence of gender-based violence because of the services that our women are looking into. And again, we are talking still under crisis, there are issues of traditional beliefs and, um, and, and, and practices that are not left behind. For instance, if a woman left a certain country or a certain uh, section or they are moving for protection, if they are married to a certain family, uh, and if the husband is, did not move with them, they have to continue in that in that in that arrangement. So this exacerbates the issue of gender-based violence uh, during uh, crisis. And of course, when we think about, um, I've talked about the traditional beliefs and practices, which even when in crisis, even if they are refugees, they are IDPs, these practices are not dropped off. And now women who are who have uh, who are fleeing their locations or their countries, they become more susceptible to issues of gender-based violence where they are on the move. Let me call it on the move, or when they are um, in their different setups. May it be IDPs, may it be refugees. I'm just wondering, how would you assess the interventions of international NGOs and their effectiveness? One thing that uh, needs to be considered, which may be lacking, is a conflict-sensitive programming. Because most of the time, when there are crises or organizations, the desire of every organization is to uh, to rescue or respond to the needs on ground. And sometimes when uh, organizations rush to do this, they miss out and that leaves out the gaps because we are talking of communities that have had narratives, you know, communities that have had the way they do things. And now we come in as organizations and our work, we want to, to deal with these issues of gender-based violence. We need to, to respond, we need to prevent the refugees or all persons of concerns. And we are not looking at the narrative that has been there before. So you find that sometimes we use a lot of resources year in, 
ear out and you are not able to reach at the level of addressing the, the root causes of gender-based violence. And I'm saying this because when we look at internally displaced persons, the refugees, they are all coming from different uh, locations, different traditional beliefs and practices, different religious beliefs, and there is a way that they do things. So sometimes we miss out on listening to the way they do things and we know we do what we know can work best for, for them. And through that assumption, it becomes very challenging for us to reach into the, the, the root causes. And when I'm saying this, I am aware that um, we have quite a lot of resources in the communities. And um, we always say that it is easy for us to bring in our resources, but we are not considering the resources that the communities have. So it will be important for us to think the resources that are available so that we, we, we build on that instead of us bringing in our resources, our ideas without considering in depth what is required by any given community. And through now, having the conflict-sensitive programming will be able to bring in not only uh, when we're responding to issues of GPV, once we sit down with the community and look at the narrative that has been there, we can be able to identify the resources that we have on the ground, we build on that, and uh, through that, we are able to come up on um, a, a durable solution in, in handling this. It's it's easy for us giving an example, and I am aware that uh, we'll have the menstrual management day coming up soon. But I am aware that sometimes we bring in our thoughts, our ideas, which is not the idea of the community. And after at the end of it, we have wasted resources, which we could have used together with the communities to come up with a structure that will help us in addressing issues of GPV. Thank you so much, Emily. In the many places, many contexts that you've been, um, and you've, you've, you've worked on GBV consistently, what are the most common forms of GBV that you have encountered where you served? Uh, almost all forms of gender-based violence are experienced, but the most prevalent, uh, the intimate partner violence, then we have the emotional abuse, then we have the harmful cultural traditional practices. And when you talk about harmful cultural traditional practices, it is the one that builds up to these other forms of uh, gender-based violence. For instance, when you talk about intimate uh, partner violence, in most of the contexts that I have worked in, the reason why women are subjected to issues of uh, gender-based violence, the intimate partner violence, is related to maybe the, the, the marriage. And we talk about marriage, where most of the locations that I've worked, there is issues of dowry. And dowry here, the way it is paid is through the cows or cash. So when a woman is unable to maybe deliver their domestic chores, they are punished based on the issue that they were, uh, dowry was paid. So there is no any way that they are not able to, to perform. Then when you talk about the traditional harmful uh, traditional practices, we are talking about early marriage and forced marriage, which is very prevalent in most of the locations that I've worked in. 
And uh, looking at this, women don't have a choice who is marrying them. The community uh, community makes the decision who is marrying them, depending on the wealth of any given man. So this becomes a challenge because if a woman runs away, they're not able to run away. They'll run away and they'll be sent back to the man that they, they've been forced to get married to. And in the recent past, it's been very sad because we've had instances whereby we are losing women uh, to domestic violence when they are punished by, they are physically abused by their by, by their by their partners, based on it, they're accused of um, of being unfaithful, and this has now increased the number of unwanted pregnancies that they have been sexually abused and uh, let me add to the list that sexual abuse in um, the areas that i've worked in is also very prevalent but it is rarely talked about especially where i am at as much as we've been raising awareness we've been encouraging women to talk about it they don't talk about it because if, if it falls under the ears of the community leaders women are punished for that so they really try to cover uh, but we do it um indirectly to make sure that even if they're exposed to sexual issues of uh, sexual uh, violence, at least they are able to access the services that are available to make sure that they don't uh, get uh, sexually transmitted illnesses and even unwanted pregnancies. I've talked about physical violence, I've talked about emotional violence. Most of the communities that I've worked in women are subjected to uh, disciplinary meetings by the community leaders if they are caught in what i could say an act or something that is not acceptable in the community so through that sometimes they are what we say that the community is a sort of punishment but through that abuse the women suffer a lot through that and they are not able to handle that and again, when we talk about, um, for instance, the children, if a woman gets a child from someone else, which is perceived that if they did not get with their husband, that child, the woman is forced to give the child back to the, 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 the uh, suspected father, which leads again to emotional abuse, because you can imagine a woman having to give away their children because they are not wanted in that family. That becomes... Um, very difficult for for women and uh, some of the punishments that are women are punished subject women to a lot of pain not forgetting that these women are coming maybe from uh, civil war they are coming from a place with crisis they are coming from conflict and now they are not allowed time to handle their to handle the to process the pain so at the end of it all this leads to post-traumatic stress disorder and mostly it is not noted until when now uh, a woman or a girl continues with the cycle of abuse and violence they are not able to handle themselves and sometimes we have cases of, of suicide I mean the cycle continues like that so it is uh, this, those are some of the uh, GB, forms of GPV that are prevalent but even others are prevalent but I'm just talking about those are um that are very high in the areas that i've operated in that must be quite a lot when you were handling all of those cases in the different um places that you've been um the next question that i have is related to your work particularly in 
promoting women's participation in leadership and peace building, how would you assess the, or how would you describe the potentials and capacity of women's groups, whether these women's groups are formal or informal, in organizing and mobilizing themselves so that they can address gender-based violence, noting that these women's groups are also you know, made up of individuals who are themselves affected by crisis, especially conflict. Mm -hmm. Of course, it's a desire for everybody who is working under GBV prevention and response, because our desire is to see that women are empowered. Our desire is to see that uh, there is zero tolerance to GBV. And uh, there has been a lot of resources that have been put in terms of empowering women in protection and peace building. Um, but looking at it, there is still a gap that needs to be addressed. Reason being, we are dealing with a patriarchal system. We are dealing with deep-rooted systems that were made without consultation of women. And even now, when you look at the decision-making, most of the time, women are not considered at the level of decision-making. And something else that uh, makes women being at a disadvantaged level is uh, literacy levels. You find that most of the women in most of the locations that I've worked with, I've worked in, their literacy levels are very low. And when it comes even to responding to some of the cases, they are challenged based on that because they have not been exposed. The only way, the only places have been exposed is in their homes, taking care of the children and uh, of course uh, domestic chores and that. So it becomes very challenging uh, for us to empower women, though there are fewer of them that are, are willing to be empowered and even them, it becomes a challenge if the structures are not accepted. For instance, most of the leadership, overall leadership, you find in a camp, you'll find that it, it is a man. Most of the positions, if in, for instance, in a church, it's a man. When you go to the religious, the other religion, if when you go to Muslims, most of the sheikhs, they are men. So it becomes very difficult for women to penetrate through. Though there has been efforts and women are willing, women are coming up, women are taking positions of leadership, but they cannot make decisions without consulting men. And that is why I was saying that we cannot engage women and leave out men. By doing this, by engaging women without engaging men, we still have a gap because men need to come in understand where the women are coming from, understand that yes, women have potentials. Most of women, for instance, if someone is given um, a position, for instance, in government positions or any other leadership position, a leadership role, they cannot abandon their domestic chores and their roles to go and attend to most of this meeting. So sometimes you hear men saying that, oh, you see, that's why we don't bring in women because they don't have time. And we cannot blame this on women because there are other roles that they cannot abandon for them to be able to attend to this. So um, there has been efforts, as I, as, as I have said, in terms of engaging women in peace building and protection, but there are gaps because we need to bring in resources to engage men. And when I talk about engaging men, not engaging men at the surface. It is sitting with men, 
for instance, some of the trainings that we conduct the trainings and look at the gender box, what a man does, what a woman, uh, what women does in a day. I mean, the box is almost empty for men and for women it's overflowing. And uh, when you're conducting such trainings, we challenge men for them to at least be able to empty some of these uh, chores that are on the women box and bring it to their side, which is challenging again, because women have been taught that this is their role and it becomes very challenging for men to come in. So um, it is possible, yes, to empower women, but we cannot empower women without capacity building men, raising awareness to men on how we can support this. But that said, we have seen uh, women coming up. We have women who are holding uh, positions of leadership, even in the camp, uh, the refugee camp, the IDP camp. We have women that are doing very well. The women groups are doing very well in terms of promoting protection and peace building. And um, through that, most women are joining them. But what we still we need to work on is engaging men for them now to have that to feel not to really come in and work with them but to appreciate what women are doing and supporting them at their level what yeah. do you think will make um you know the programs around engaging boys and men effective particularly how can we make these accountable to women and girls uh in terms of um having men and boys on board uh, for prevention and response, we need to think of programs that are only that are not only done in a training setup, but they are replicated at homes and they are replicated everywhere else that we go. For instance, when you talk about um, chores, we know the amount of time that women spend in care work, you know, and this care workers or domestic work is what, what really uh, prevents women from taking part in most of the activities. That is one. The other thing is uh, education. There is still there in some location, there is prevalence of boys going to school because girls at a certain age, they're supposed to be married off. For instance, the current location I'm in, at 15 years, a girl is supposed to be married. And uh, for them, they don't consider that being in school after 15, that is their culture, that is what they know. So even them at 15, they are prepared. Then another thing that we need to look at is um, the way we respond to this, because it is engaging men, training them on accountable practices. It is not enough if we don't have follow-up. It is not enough if we don't have men who are following up on men and boys to make sure that uh, they're accountable and they're committed to this. It's very easy for us to come up with programs, maybe one year or two year programs that we'll have. Yes, we have this uh, group of men. We have this group of, of young men or youth that we are um, training them to be accountable. It's easy to say that, but how practical is this? These are some of the things that we need to consider or to think deeply, because if we come and train them and there is no follow-up, it does not bear any fruits. 
it does not really um, support women. It does not come in for the benefit of women. It's still benefiting men because they are aware what they're supposed to be doing and they don't do it. So it will be helpful when you're thinking or when any organization is thinking about engaging men and boys to think of follow up and making men accountable. How are they accountable on this? Do they come back and have a discussion? Do they have a place that they have owned it, that this is what we are doing in terms of supporting women? And do, are they there um, mentoring other men? I mean, these are some of the things that we need to look at. And it should not only be on paper. It should be on paper and it should be followed up to ensure that we are holding men accountable. And holding men accountable doesn't mean that if someone is um, is, is is a perpetrator of GBV, that they are, they are arrested. Of course, that is one way of, of holding men accountable. But you're talking of really making them, putting the shoes of women, wearing the shoes of women, being empathetic, and walking the journey with women. And uh, through this, women will be able to come out and actually now relate with men at a level of not fear, not traditional practices, not of the opposite gender, but a co-worker or um, in terms of now peace building and, and protection. Thank you so much, Emily, for that very substantive um, critique on um, engaging uh-huh. boys and men. Uh-huh. So we're already reaching um, the end of our conversation. Um, one last question yeah. for me, and then I'll also ask you later if you have other thoughts that you want to impart. What makes you hopeful about the possibility of addressing, if not completely eliminating gender-based violence, especially in emergencies? Thank you, Nina. Um, what makes me hopeful? Very many things make me hopeful, but what stands out is a uh, willingness for the community to be challenged, the responsiveness and the receptiveness of the communities. This comes in because we always say, when we think about traditional practices and beliefs, it is not very far from religious beliefs and practices. We cannot actually be able to differentiate what is acceptable when it comes to religious beliefs and what is acceptable when it comes to traditional beliefs and practices. This is because this is the the traditional beliefs and practices is something that the community has been doing from the time they know the same thing when it comes to religious beliefs and they are both intertwined. What gives me uh, hope is that there is willingness. For instance, where I am currently and where I've worked, it has been very difficult for us to to, to gain a hearing of women um, with the opposite sex. And uh, now what gives me hope is that, that there is willingness in the community if we manage to identify the resources that we have. And again, there is hope if we get to identify other deep-rooted concerns or issues that bring about the issues of gender-based violence, you know, and uh, through this we can say that we can come up, we are able to come up with a structure, sustainable structures in the community that they are able to address issues of gender-based violence and empowering women. I know this is um, very challenging, it looks complicated, but I do believe that it is possible. Yes, we are able to 
get the community become responsible. We are able to challenge the patriarchal systems. And uh, through this, eventually we'll be able to change the existing narratives. Any other thoughts that you want to share with us? Any final word? Um, well, I don't have uh, other thoughts, but maybe as I have described, the issues of gender-based violence, we want to say, I would like to say that uh, it is complicated and it requires time and resources. And when I talk of resources, I am talking of the communities that we are responding to. Because the major gaps that we have, of course, we cannot do without uh, financial resources. But what we need most is the communities that we are working with. And uh, through this, once we get to identify the resources on ground, that is the only way we can be able to overcome the issues of gender-based violence. I'm saying to overcome in a small way. Uh, I am <laughs> I am a believer that even if we are to change one person, I mean, eventually in the future, this will replicate and will have positive feedback. So uh, my thought is that we need to look more at the resources that we have on ground for us to be able to challenge the systems and come up with sustainable plans for response and prevention. Thank you. Thank you so much, Emily. We really appreciate the time that you shared with us, and more importantly, the substantive thoughts that you that you shared with us out of your reflection from the many years that you've spent, particularly on GBV prevention and response. We wish you all the best. We know that you are still working in a very volatile context, and you will continue to do so. So all the best to you and thank you once again. Thank you very much, Nina, for having me and I wish you the very best too. Thank you for listening. I hope you have enjoyed the conversation between Nina and Emily. Please join us again in our next episode. And if you want to know more about our work, or catch up on previous episodes of the Faith in Development podcast, please visit learn.tfund.org. See you next time.